it's very, very tempting to, to kind of float up here as a leader and say, hey, you know, you take that hill over there, you guys do this over here. When in fact, like what you, where you really learn where the challenges are, or the problems or the successes is by like, just like being there with, with the people in the trenches on like one of the things, like whichever one seems hardest or most complicated. And so I try to do that as often as I can. And I found that I always learn <laughs> a lot by, by going through that detailed exercise. Welcome to Lenny's podcast, where I interview world-class product leaders and growth experts to learn from their hard-won experiences building and growing today's most successful products. Today, my guest is Jeremy Henriksen. Jeremy is Senior Vice President of Product at Rippling, where he leads the product and design teams. Previously, he was Chief Product Officer at Coinbase, where he oversaw 10x growth of the product and engineering organizations and helped scale Coinbase during one of the craziest times in the crypto markets. In our conversation, Jeremy shares his lessons about maintaining velocity at scale, creating a culture of fast decision-making, the importance of product leaders going deep on a problem and becoming world experts at their domain, what to look for in product managers you're interviewing, why relying on frameworks can be so detrimental to your success, why you may want to avoid MVPs and instead design for the most complex use cases first, and tons more. Enjoy this episode with Jeremy Henriksen after a short word from our sponsors. Today's episode is brought to you by Miro, an online collaborative whiteboard that's designed specifically for teams like yours. The best way to see what Miro is all about and how it can help your team collaborate better is not to listen to me talk about it, but to go check it out for yourself. Go to miro.com slash Lenny. With the help of the Miro team, I created a super cool Miro board with two of my own favorite templates, my one pager template and my managing up template that you can plug and play and start using immediately with your team. I've also embedded a handful of my favorite templates that other people have published in the Miraverse. When you get to the board, you can also leave suggestions for the podcast, answer a question that I have for you, and generally just play around to get a sense of how it all works. Miro is a killer tool for brainstorming with your team, laying out your strategy, sharing user research findings, capturing ideas, giving feedback on wireframes, and generally just collaborating with your colleagues. I actually used Miro to collaborate with the Miro team on creating my own board. And it was super fun and super easy. Go check it out at Miro.com slash Lenny. That's M-I-R-O.com slash Lenny. This episode is brought to you by Mixpanel. Get deep insights into what your users are doing at every stage of the funnel at a fair price that scales as you grow. Mixpanel gives you quick answers about your users from awareness to acquisition through retention. And by capturing website activity, add data, and multi-touch attribution right in Mixpanel, you can improve every aspect of the full user funnel. Powered by first-party behavioral data instead of third-party cookies, Mixpanel is built to be more powerful and easier to use than Google Analytics. Explore plans for teams of every size and see what Mixpanel can do for you at mixpanel.com slash friends slash Lenny. And while you're at it, they're also hiring. So check it out at mixpanel.com slash friends slash Lenny. Jeremy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to be here. So I've heard nothing but amazing things about you, and I'm excited to learn from what you've learned from your experience at Rippling, at Coinbase, and all of the products and teams that you've built. And so thank you again for being here. Yeah, super happy to be here. So I want to start with, a, with your time at Coinbase, where you're Chief Product Officer. And you're Chief Product Officer during maybe the craziest time in the crypto markets. It was, uh, I think... <laughs> 2016, 2018, when I was looking at the Bitcoin prices and it was like, it went from like $1,000 to $20,000, I think, in a, in a matter of months. So yeah. I'm curious, what was that experience like? And in particular, what was like leading a product team through that experience? The, the strongest memories for me, for me are during like 2017, where crypto, which had kind of been at its nadir in like early 2016, and kind of slowly started climbing out. I'm um, just kind of took off and became a real thing in the in the public consciousness. And, you know, Coinbase, which at the time had, you know, an exchange just like on ramp and off ramp from fiat to, to crypto and back experienced over the course of 2017, 40x growth in in usage. That's like a dream come true for for a lot of people. It's it, it, no, I mean, it, it, it was it was both a dream and a nightmare. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I was I was incredibly lucky to be working on it with a with a team of people that I could really trust and could stand shoulder to shoulder with in, in the trenches. And it was a lot of learning about how you can rapidly 
scale systems you know, over time. And, you know, people like to trade crypto on Saturday mornings. <laughs> and so uh, a lot of Saturday mornings, there's like some new like like thing would break on the edges of the system and we need to kind of get in there and 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 work on it. And so it was just a lot of really incredible lessons about who you choose to work with and focus and making sure you have the right people in the room at the right time. Okay, so let's actually unpack a couple of those. So focus is really interesting and something people always talk about, but, you know, hard to actually do. I guess, how did you keep the team focused? I imagine just like, you know, everyone's getting rich all over the place in crypto. Things are breaking all the time. Like, how did you maintain focus on, on your team? Well, the first thing is you don't talk about people getting rich. <laughs> it's like it's a it's a very technical it's a very technical. You talk about like it's customers, it's their money, right? And number one, it had to be secure, right? So there's a guy named Philip Barton, friend of mine now, and he's he's just this amazing like security leader um, at at Coinbase, and he was able to always put these like decisions that we were making extremely quickly like in context, right? And say, look, these are the kinds of decisions we can make and still have it be secure no matter how fast we, we need to move. And so security was always like the number the number one thing. And then the second thing is like focusing on like the, the both the kind of immediate nature of the issue, hey, site is down or whatever, and like resolving that, but also trying to set those in a context of like where we need to go over the next six months. Like, what are we actually shooting for? What do we believe the volumes are going to be? What's it going to take to... To, to have, you know, everything from a user experience to kind of the, the deep back end of the product that would actually work for that. What was maybe the biggest challenge as a product leader trying to keep people focused and everything on the rails as things were going 40x? I think the biggest challenge was that in crypto, there's just so much uncertainty in general, like simple questions like, is Ethereum going to be a thing, mm. right, are the subject of debate? And no one actually, you know, at the time, had an answer to that question, lots of really strong opinions. And so you have to be able to have those debates because, because lots is going, lots is going on, but then you have to be able to come out of those conversations with a clear kind of company point of view that you're all, that you're all shooting toward. And like, while there may still be differing points of views and debates that happen on the margins, like you go full speed toward this answer until you decide to go full speed toward a different answer. And I thought we were pretty successful at that, um, at Coinbase and it wasn't always easy. <laughs> Maybe just a last question there. Sure. Living through a time like that, a lot of people are going through these periods of just like intense work and it's like, holy moly, this isn't crazy stressful, working like incredibly long hours. But then you look back at those times and end up being some of those important, meaningful periods of your career. Mm-hmm. I guess one is that is that your experience too. And then two, I guess, is there any advice for someone that's maybe going through something like that of just like, here's, uh, here's maybe the silver lining of being in a period like that? So it's hard, right? It wasn't wasn't always easy. I had like a new daughter who had been born just a few months earlier, oh, wow. right? Really tough to like kind of balance balance those things. But I've always loved the rate of learning. And and so like those it is those experiences I feel that like have most sort of accelerated my own personal growth and personal learnings because it's in the in the crucible of things being hard. And so I think when people are going through those times, it's nice to take like you know, a step back and talk with friends or whatever about like, what's really what's really going on and setting it in the context of, hey, you know, three, four, five years from now, when we look back on this, we realize, wow, you know, we a we did something amazing with that time. And b we we learned a lot. And we were able to take that with us kind of into the into, you know, whatever we were doing next after that. Before our chat asked you what people ask you for advice most around. And you said that it's that people often ask you for advice on how to maintain velocity at scale, mm-hmm. which uh, is something every founder and product leader is always striving to do. And so yep. what have you learned? And what do you tell people about maintaining and maybe even improving velocity as you scale? I, I think there's a lot of different answers here. And I think a lot of them are are very specific to the nature of the business that someone's in, right? Different businesses can maintain ve- velocity in, in different ways. I think there's kind of a universal truth that you want like small teams with clear missions, right? You know, if if there's... 300 people trying to work on one thing, like the, the just sheer like communication challenges, Dunbar's number, all of those things come into play. And it's really, really hard to act quickly. And so having smaller groups of people breaking down what is always a very, very large problem into like sufficiently small, small bits that small groups can attack wholeheartedly and minimize like horizontal communication, I think is, is the first thing. 
I think the second thing is that to the extent it's like a technology problem, the more you can bake into like a, a clear platform, um, it reduces like the decision-making complexity for everyone who's working on like the domain part of the problem. And so like a clear platform with a clear interface, you know, easy to use in all the ways that both engineers and product people want it to be easy to use, simplifies the, the, the space in which people have to think about these problems. Um, and that's not always easy, right? Platforms are not, you know, you can't just like write a platform and hope it's going to work for the products. It's very much an iterative thing. But the more one can invest in that and have the right kinds of people who are capable of doing that sort of both systems thinking and product thinking simultaneously, um, I think is really important. The third thing, just from a leadership point of view, is like diving deep, right? Like it's it's very, very tempting to to kind of float up here as a leader and say, hey, you know, you take that hill over there, you guys do this over here. When in fact, like what you, where you really learn where the challenges are, or the problems or the successes is by like, just like being there with, with the people in the trenches on like one of the things, like whichever one seems hardest or most complicated. And so I try to do that as often as I can. And I found that I always learn <laughs> a lot by, by going through that detailed exercise. And I think the, the last thing is just making sure that teams have like the right distribution of like, experience and, and seniority like sometimes you get a team started and the team is like perhaps doing something that's like zero to one and they're amazing at all this zero to one stuff and then like two or three years later like those same people are trying to like scale the product to like you know millions of people and it turns out that a they don't like that part of the job as much and b maybe they're not as good at it so i think you have to constantly like look at the team and make sure that a people are doing things that they love and if they're not like hey try this other thing instead, right? And, and B, like recalibrate the team and make sure like the right kind of skill sets are there. And I found if you kind of do all of those things and then have product leadership where we're saying, this is what we need to do, right? And we're very, very clear and precise on, on what needs to be done, then you can usually actually even accelerate over time because you bake more into this platform. It allows your engineers to do more with less. And that's always pretty amazing. Okay, let me dig into a couple of these. These are really <laughs> yeah, great. Please. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So with the small teams with clear missions, is there an example of that at Rippling or Coinbase where that was like a really good example of this being true? One example is maybe three years ago when I, when I was uh, just starting at the company, um, we decided that we needed to build a time and attendance product. Um, lots of market demand for us in that. We hadn't built it yet, something that many customers need. And so... There were a bunch of ways we could have chosen to do that, but the way we did it was to say, look, let's find one engineer, really talented systems engineer who's actually capable of doing kind of product thinking and have Parker, CEO, also spend time on it. And you start there, right? And Sachith brought a few people on with him. And those four people over the course of maybe nine months or so built a time and attendance product. It was the only thing they were doing. They didn't have to worry about what was going on with our payroll product, except to the extent they had to integrate with them a little bit, right? They didn't have to worry about what was going on with the kind of the benefits team or kind of our IT products. They were, they were monomaniacally focused on this one thing and then identifying the places where, yes, you, there's connectivity to, to the rest of the suite. And that allowed them to move extremely quickly. How much of that was Parker being on the team, helping them unblock everything versus being very small and focused? I think it was mostly small focus. Like obviously Parker can like do things and unblock them in the way that only a CEO um, can and that, and that helps. But the thing is that Rippling, like we've now replicated that like, you know, a dozen times, right? That's our model for, for starting new things. And so it can't just be him unblocking things. Oh, he does <laughs> unblock things. It's more that like this pattern of having these small groups, like be able to do things and then being able to have like go to those people, right? Whether you're Parker or somebody else in the company and be able to say, Hey, how are things going? Or, you know, are we working on the right things? Or let's see the latest designs for that thing and comment on it. Like all of those things can happen just at a much greater tempo than if you're like trying to go three layers down into the org and, and do things. I think that's the other maybe the key point here that like everyone is exposed to senior leadership. Like, yes, we have like a management structure because you have to, but that management structure does not interfere with the ability of kind of anyone anywhere in the organization to kind of like look at what's actually happening. And that happens very directly. So let's talk about that model you just described. So what is that model? So this is how you approach new products. And I know within Rippling, there's many, many products and features. We're going to talk yeah. about this. And you're saying that you have kind of an approach to adding a new business unit, essentially, or a new product feature. Yeah. What is what is that model, roughly? Yeah, so the model is quite simple. In, in the vast majority of cases, we realize we need to build something. 
um, and we have, you know, the, the one page view of what that is. And usually we're lucky enough that the things we're building sort of exist in some form in the industry today, not in the differentiated way that we can build it, but like time and attendance is an example, like that's a well-known thing in the industry. There's whole companies that do only that, right? So we start there, we find a single engineer who is extremely entrepreneurial, understands what it means to operate at tempo, understands what it means to like make decisions with low information, understands how to work very, very quickly with like a design partner. So we have a design partner and we say, look, come into Rippling, spend a few months getting to know the platform, first of all. So go work on this other team, understand what's easy for them, what's hard for them, how the platform works, how other products have been built on top of this. Go talk with other like people who founded products here and understand what their experience is so that you can learn from and iterate on it get an opinion about your product, and then start building it. Um, and during this intervening time, they're also recruiting, right? A team of usually two, three, four other engineers who kind of have that same zero to one mentality, and they start building. And uh, usually over the course of like six to nine months, we can get a product from, you know, a blank sheet of paper to something that is launched, or at least that we're using sort of internally, when we dog food our, our stuff really heavily. Um, and then it grows from there. And then sometimes when you launch one of these products, you get close to launch, you realize, hey, actually a team of five or six people can like kind of handle this product at nauseam. Sometimes you have to bump it up. It's like, okay, this thing's about to go to production. There's all these other things to do. The team needs now needs to go from four to 15 or something like that. It really depends on, on the product. But that that's the general life cycle. And then you, you keep growing and scaling it. That is fascinating. So just so I understand, you find a founder type to kind of take the lead on a new idea. And do you recruit them internally or you sometimes find them externally just to focus on this Both. product? Interesting. Both. Okay. And then you find a design partner for them to work with to figure out what exactly needs to be built. And is it the idea pick one design partner or you try to encourage a few? Um, usually it's one. Like, so there's a designer, right? So we have, you know, a, a design. Oh, design partner, meaning a designer, not a company that is like their partner in design. Oh, no, 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 no. Like okay. literally somebody who, okay. who, who, you know, knows Rippling's products, knows like our component library, knows all of that stuff and is, is, is skilled in like doing, you know, UX and, you know, interaction and, and visual design. Got it. Okay. Designer. Okay. Good. Cool. And then they basically, with maybe a couple of engineers, just that's the team that initiates a new product line and then launches it. And then as it scales, it maybe grows the team, maybe not. Yep, that's right. And like, you know, every, you know, it's pretty ad hoc, but every couple of weeks or something like that, they're meeting with like me or with Parker, or, you know, whichever one of us is like the DRI on it and like giving feedback on the designs, kind of having a critical eye for like, oh, man, if I were using this as a admin, you know, a small company or an admin at a large company, how would I feel about this? Would this interface work for me? And so we were pressure testing it like kind of throughout throughout that cycle and trying to get the balance of like, you know, speed and comprehensiveness, right? This reminds me, you're also, I hear, not a big fan of MVPs, that you like building <laughs> products to further, to a further point. Is that, is that true? And then if so, how do, you, how do you think about the initial version of a product? First of all, I don't want to knock on MVPs. I think MVPs <laughs> like, have their place. They're, they're extremely useful, particularly if you're you know, literally at a zero-to-one company that's never done anything before and you don't have like, clear market validation. I think in our case specifically for, for Rippling, a minimum viable product would do a disservice like to both our customers and to like the very team that was building it. And the reason I believe that is that when, when you design a minimum viable product, you're optimizing for speed. And in that opt set of optimizations, you are minimizing the deeper product thinking about what can like fully differentiate our product based on not only existing kind of capabilities within our products and platform, but based on what it ought to do in the future. And so it sort of limits product creativity, but worse, it leads to building the wrong thing technically, right? So if you're only thinking through the simple cases and you're an engineer and no one's pushing you on saying, wait, what about that, you know, healthcare hospital administration case where like, you know, it's mission critical in life, then you're going to make a different set of architectural assumptions. And then you're going to build on those. And you're going to build on those for six months, nine months, a year, and you'll have dozens or hundreds of assumptions built on top of those. And it's extremely difficult to unwind those decisions once you've built them into the product. And, and therefore, you know, we believe very deeply, it's like, 
sure, understand those simple cases, right? Understand if you're a two-person company, you don't need all of these other things. And what is the product going to look like for you to approach it? But also understand what it would mean to have 10,000 people globally around the world with this like ridiculously hard use case. What's the model that would support that, right? And let's make sure that as we're doing the technical and product design for this thing, that it accommodates that view, even if we're not going to support it in the first version, right? Even if we make like the product decision to say like, look, we actually don't need to handle that case right now. You still build the product in a way that's not going to, that's not going to prevent you from getting there in the future. And does that take a little more time? Sure. Yeah. But does it save you time in the long run? Absolutely. Right. And so, um, so that's our approach. Is there an example that comes to mind of a product you build at Rippling or Coinbase of just like, it could have been this really simple MVP and then ended up being like, no, we did the right thing by building it further along the spectrum. Yeah. So I think a great example of this at Rippling uh, is our global payroll product, right? We could have said, hey, look, um, we just need to support this one country, right? We need to support uh, whatever, the UK, let's say. So we're going to copy all of our US stuff like just replicate it and like change all the things to be UK like. That would have been the fastest thing to do to dramatically <laughs> oversimplify. Right. But that's not what we did. What we did is we said, look, we need to launch with six countries. And these are six super different countries that we that we want to like look at. And they're gonna have different requirements from like an HRIS standpoint, from an employer of record standpoint, from how you pay global contractors, from how payroll works. And we're gonna make a system that works for those countries. And there's like lots of downstream implications for that. But what it means is that now our global payroll system, adding a country is, it's not easy, (laughs) but it's a lot easier than it would have been if you had to like continue to stamp out and replicate. And then of course, maintain all of these things that have very little underlying connectivity. And instead what we have is like, you know, 80% of the system is baked into our global payroll platform. And then like the 20% is like, country specific. And most of that specificity can be handled not by engineers, right, who are very, very expensive to change things that are like local specific, but instead can be configured by somebody that's in compliance by somebody that's in legal that needs to get the right documents into the system. And all of that stuff can be handled by 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 the system, which allows us to move much faster sort of going forward. I've heard you describe this kind of idea as you encourage teams to design for the most complex use case first. Is that kind of the instruction you give these teams? 100% many times. (laughs) And so it's one of these things that like, until you're here, it's a really difficult thing to kind of grok because A, it's so counterculture to what like the background that most people have come from. It's like, no, 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 don't think about all those things. Just like zoom in on this, on this one case, use it as a wedge and then grow from there. And this is one of the reasons that we have people, especially new people in these kind of founding roles come in and spend a few months just like absorbing the culture to like really, really learn, really learn these lessons. And it's one reason that we're extremely high touch with kind of new products in, in their infancy to make sure that we just don't fall into that trap, right? Especially because like simultaneously with doing this, we're like, hey, but we need to ship this as fast as possible, right? And so you want to get the the balance of those two things, right? So when I think about Rippling, I think of you got kind of the culture is to do things the hard way and the, the, the right way. And an element of that is there's this concept that I've heard that Rippling is this compound startup. Mm. What is that? term mean? And then how does that approach impact the way you build product and organize teams and all the things you were just talking about of MVPs and, you know, build new products? The idea of a compound startup for us is that we're basically a lot of businesses that all work together, right? Like, if you think about about the products we offer, we have payroll, well, there's entire companies built just on payroll, insurance and benefits, entire companies, that's their entire life. In fact, like, a fragment of benefits is the entire life cycle of a whole company. You know, our IT products, device management, identity management, time and attendance, each of these things are industries into themselves with like multi-billion dollar companies serving each of them. The insight Parker had, you know, before he founded the company was like, actually, the result you get that when you have that is that there's all this data that gets replicated and copied and is impossible to keep in sync everywhere. The right answer is to have a single system of record, one place, one database, where all of that information is resident, so that each of these downstream systems can always have the right data at the right time. And then you can build on top of that, you know, things like workflow and reporting and analytics and permissioning and and all these kind of underlying capabilities. So the idea of a compound startup is like all of these different businesses benefit 
from being built on top of one platform. The activation energy for that is extremely high, <laughs> right? So before my time at the company, you know, Parker, Prasanna, the technical founder and others, you know, built all of the first versions of all of these products. And it was a minor miracle that <laughs> they were able to do that. But having done it, right, we then had that platform and we could continue to build like new verticals and new startups, right, on, on top of that, um, on top of that foundation. This touches on something that comes up a number of times in this podcast, which is the importance of differentiation. And it feels like this is the differentiator for Rippling. It's not going to be just a better one of these vertical solutions. The, the main differentiator is we're going to do it all. And everything's going to be so much better because it's all in one platform. Is that is that kind of where the original idea came from? Or is there a different way to think about that? Yeah, I think that's right. So, I mean, the, the, the fundamental contention is having a single system of record is better for many, many, many reasons, right? The, the most simple of which is there's, there's a single source of truth and like all of these other products can rely on it. But also, unless you start with that assumption of everything being in a single system of record, there's a bunch of other things you can't do. Right. You can't you can't build out a, I don't know, a permissioning system that looks at the various attributes across all of these products. You now suddenly have to do an integration and each of these products talks different languages. You can't do simple things like build a product and say, who is this person's manager? Most products, you can't do that. Most products, you find some system of truth, export everybody's name and email address in a spreadsheet. You know, have another email address or another name, maybe an employee ID of like who that person reports to and upload that to another system, which by the way, is immediately out of date because organizational structures change all the time. Whereas with Rippling, it's always correct, right? We are the system of record. So all of our products, they're like, hey, who's that person's manager? And the system immediately knows, right? And that's a very, very simple example of something that that you can only do if you start with like solving, to come back to our earlier point, like solve the most complex use case first, right? Solve the fact that this data all needs to be in the same place. And so our ability to kind of differentiate, right, boils down to kind of that one fundamental decision, which just allows us to do things that are impo literally impossible for any other company to do. What would you say is uh, one of the most unique things about Rippling's culture that maybe you haven't mentioned yet? I would say it's fundamental speed of execution, right? I think in speed of decision making, it's the thing that is probably the hardest to explain to people before they're here. Like it, it's hard to understand until you experience it. Like let's not schedule a meeting for next week or tomorrow or later today. You know, we're in the middle of a meeting. We need to make a decision. Let's either make the decision or if we can't, let's like slack call in the person that we need in order to make that decision. And we'll be done with the decision today. And like, sure, there are irreversible decisions you can't make that way. Right. But for the most part, we really value like the tempo of decision making and the speed the speed of response and no company i've been at in any scale five people <laughs> you know five thousand people has ever operated at the tempo this one does and i think that our ability to continue to operate at that tempo which is partly due to the fact that we are a compound startup and have these small teams, independently operating teams and all the rest of that is a really differentiating thing about the culture of the company i'm reading kevin kelly's new book or i don't know if you've seen his new book it's all these mm -hmm. like little tidbits of advice and one of his pieces of advice is that usually the best time to do something is right now. Yes. And <laughs> that feels like that resonates with the way you all think. I'm curious just how you create that culture and ability to make decisions fast. Is it purely top-down founder, this is how they behave? Or is there something else that you found is effective to create this culture of moving fast, making decisions really quickly? Obviously, a huge piece of this is like Parker himself, right? It's an attribute of his personality, he likes making decisions quickly. And it's also a deliberate strategic decision on his part to like have a company that makes decisions quickly. And so he models this constantly, right? In Slack and conversations in person and in, in every way possible. And there's an expectation kind of throughout the company, if you kind of look at our leadership principles, like you know, this ability to make decisions quickly is something that kind of everybody promulgates. But also, I think there's a number of things we've done to sort of like bake it in right like in the way that we you know even do like say quarterly planning and the fact that like there's this timeline for decision making that doesn't leave like you know a lot of room in the way that we expect people to know their domains especially in product right in product you're you don't own like little feature you own like your product and you're expected to be the world's foremost expert in it and if you are, what that means is like, instead of having to come back to people three days later with an answer just off the top of your head, you can be like, yes, 
this is what I think I should do about that. Or, you know, give me 30 minutes to look something up and like I can tell you what we need to do about that. And so all of those things in combination just yield an environment in which these decisions happen very quickly. You talked about quarterly planning and you're saying that there's like, here's the timelines. We need to make decisions on these dates. And there's a culture yeah. of just, we stay firm to that. And if you don't, then yeah. we're going to move on. That's right. And so, and so, and it's, it's shocking to people when we actually move on, right? That, that haven't been here yet. It's like, no, no, that date passed. <laughs> you don't, you don't get to like retroactively, like, like make everybody react to the fact that you didn't operate quickly enough. Right. And it's, and it's not a, it's not a hostile thing, right? It's just a, people just have to get used to it. So it's a, it's a deep cultural principle. And the fact that everyone stands behind it, uh, just means it's like gets reinforced on sort of its own, out of its own gravity. Do you have, values like internal values that you've kind of outlined that are a part of this or is that not something that you find super valuable no we actually i find them quite valuable and actually our, our coo matt mcginnis who you know joined the company about a year before i did you know he has been the one to like really drive this and you know you go to i can't remember this specific url but on rippling there's a search of rippling leadership principles mm -hmm. you know there they are um, and they are really true to the culture of the company. The way we came up with them it was to, to us, you know, a couple of years ago to introspect into what the, what actually made people successful at the company, like who's successful, why are they successful? Why do they enjoy being here? Or alternatively, the opposite, right? Like why people not worked out? Why do some people like not enjoy it here? And like, those are the things that are differentiating. And those are the things that we wrote down. Are you hiring? Or on the flip side, are you looking for a new opportunity? Well, either way, check out lennysjobs.com slash talent. If you're a hiring manager, you can sign up and get access to hundreds of hand-curated people who are open to new opportunities. Thousands of people apply to join this collective, and I personally review and accept just about 10% of them. You won't find a better place to hire product managers and growth leaders. Join almost 100 other companies who are actively hiring through this collective. And if you're looking around for a new opportunity, actively or passively, join the collective. It's free, you can be anonymous, and you can even hide yourself from specific companies. You can also leave anytime, and you'll only hear from companies that you want to hear from. Check out lennysjobs.com slash talent. For someone listening, that's like, we need to move faster. And everyone always feels this. We need to move faster. We make decisions faster. What, what piece of advice would you give someone for helping them do this at their company? I think it's really context dependent, but, but I think it starts with, you know, whoever is in the role of like making the top level product decisions, right? Of them being one, extremely clear about what those priorities are, and more importantly, extremely clear about what all the priorities aren't, right? Like there are so many things that like could be important or people can make the case for being important or whatever that like, are fundamentally distracting from like the, the core mission of getting something done. But secondly, for that person to go all the way to ground on it, right? We have a, we have one of the leadership principles is go and see, right? So to, to, to look at the thing and then like walk all the way to ground and like talk with the engineer who's like writing the code on the thing, because inevitably this top level communication is insufficient to get to like the detail of like what matters and doesn't matter. And you don't have to do that everywhere, but if you do it in enough places, what it does is it creates a clear expectation of that kind of clarity sort of across the board and like forces everyone to sort of like up their game a little bit and just helps people understand what the expectation is, right? And I think in the absence of those sort of clear expectations, it's difficult for people to like perform at their best, right? And so um, we try to do that pretty frequently. Okay, I definitely want to spend more time on this, but uh, before we get there, uh, so go and see. I love that. And that actually has come up recently on a number of podcasts, just the importance of people continuing to ask questions and going to like the end of what's possible. A uh, recent story was IO talking about building the cash card and going to like the warehouse and watching the printings of the cards and things like that. Yeah. I guess, first of all, do you have a sense of where that came from and why that ended up being so important to you all? And then two is just, is there an example of you doing that or someone you've seen do that and sh and that leading to something really important in the early days of our um, kind of global efforts, right? When we were first trying to figure out like what global payroll was, it was really tempting to say like, oh, well, we're going to go into the UK and that's going to be like relatively similar to what we're doing in the US. But our kind of head of payroll went in and said like, actually, here are the ways in which like we knew it was going to be different, but here are the ways in which we didn't anticipate that it was going to be different which made us realize that we had to completely alter our approach 
right, for how we think about learning about each of these countries and going into them and having like a fulsome experience. And, and that then backs into things like, well, every country does tax filings. Every country does them slightly differently. But how are we going to build a tax filing system that's going to allow us to like satisfy the needs of every country in which we're going to run payroll, right? And it was only through that like very early on, like deep look at how one country was actually operating and then doing the same thing with the next country that like we were able to set in motion all of those things, right? It's not like we knew all the answers at that point, but it allowed us at a much earlier stage to put in motion a bunch of stuff that we need to do that then got subsequently much more clarified and much more precise um, over time. And so the the leader of that team basically just went and studied the tax laws of each yeah. country. That's right. Like went all the way, like went all the way to ground. It's like, okay, like let's go and open up the big old, like, I mean, it's like online these days with the big old tax book and look like it's like, or when you're in the United States, it's like you have to go look at Ohio or Pennsylvania, which have all these like little, like local, like city or county based taxes. Um, and it's, and it's incredibly instructive to look at just a few of those and think like, wow, how do, how do I think about like configuring these change? Like, unannounced, right? Like some city administrator, you know, or the city legislature, whatever they call them, right? They decide to change the tax rate. Well, how are we going to know about that? How are we going to change it? How are we going to change it? So it's effective at the right time. And you don't think about those things until you've gone all the way to ground and looked at how these things are actually actually worked, how they're communicated and how they're thought through. And I think the same thing is true of every aspect of every product, you know, in, in different ways, right? It might be a technical thing. It might be a design thing. It might be a, a a compliance or regulatory or governmental thing, but whatever it is, that detail always exists. And unless you're getting down there and seeing it and understanding it firsthand, you don't really understand what your product needs to do. And I think an important element of this that's between the lines maybe is don't delegate this to someone. Like you may have a mm -mm. tax expert on mm -hmm. the team and I imagine many leaders would be like, oh, go figure this out and tell me. And I think yeah. what you're saying is you go do that and learn, become the world expert. That's right. That's right. You go do it, you go learn. And then we can make the case for hiring the tax expert, right? Which we do have, by the way, now, right? Like that's, that's, that's an incredibly important part of our success is having that specialist, but not before somebody with a product mindset. Like the tax specialist is amazing at tax, right? That's what they're, that's what they're, they love and that's what they do, but that doesn't make them necessarily a great product thinker, right? So the person with the product thing has to, has to get into those same weeds first to really understand it. Do you give any guidance and just like how much time to spend on all that stuff versus like, you know, the regular day to day of say a product leader on a team, you know, there's, it takes a lot of time to become a world expert on the tax uh, systems mm -hmm. of many countries, or is it just like, there's nothing more important than that. That is like your job. And what are you doing? Not doing that. How do you, how do you think about it? I think it's an equally, you know, <laughs> if a job is 80 hours a week, it's like 40 of your hours. Like it's, mm -hmm. it's, I, I think, I think that, that it, it, you can't really understand a product unless you've gone there. Right. And yes, it takes time. And you're right. You can't just ignore like the, the other half of the job of, you know, communicating with, you know, the engineering team and like writing documents or whatever. But like, what's the point of writing a document if you don't know what you're talking about? Right. And so, and so we very deeply value that. And it's one of the reasons that we keep, at least at Rippling, our product organization really thin. Right. We expect like a single leader, right, to be able to know like the full scope of the product. In fact, great product leaders can in fact do that because they like have this native curiosity and, and interest and like ability to absorb a lot of stuff. And, uh, and it makes, it's a lot of fun because now like I have a group of people around me who like are all like really good at what they do and really understand what they do. And that that's kind of just an amazing, amazing place to be. I'm looking at this list and I just want to keep asking questions about it. Uh, one of the sure. principles that I love is, and it reminds me of Amazon has the same principle, I believe, which is leaders are right a lot. Yeah. Why do you find that to be important? I know you weren't necessarily designing all these principles, but I imagine that something that you guys follow often and comes up a lot. I mean, this is one of my favorite ones because I think for particularly for a product org, right? Because product leaders have to be right <laughs> most of the time because their decisions reflect across the entire org and their decisions fundamentally spend time, right? And they spend energy. And if they make good ones, the company does really well. And if they make bad ones, the company doesn't. And one of the things I really value in product leaders are people who can go into like an ambiguous information with, with uh, ambiguous situation with incomplete information and like a, dis a complex decision space and can like look at that and listen to everybody and read whatever they need to read and say, 
this is where we need to go. And like, even if everyone else is like, ah, I don't know, that feels wrong for this reason, this reason, if they have like the confidence to like make that call. And then a year later, when you look back on it for them to have been right, that's extremely valuable. And it's one of these things that like, it's really hard to test for, right? You can, you can get it by like talking with people and, and asking, Hey, was this person like usually right in respect and people think about it, but like in the context of like a given company, just, you have to take the time and see if those decisions are, are, are largely right. And it's the one value we have. It's like, you can't really learn it, <laughs> right? Either, either you're really, really good at making those kinds of decisions or you're not right? It's a very peculiar skill that we, that we really value. Awesome. Shifting a little bit. Mm-hmm. I know you all are going through this global expansion. We talked about this a little bit. Yeah. And so just a few questions along this lines, because a lot of companies start, you know, one country, most companies do, and then they decide let's expand to new markets. <laughs> so I guess first question is just how do you decide which markets to go after and, and specifically where to start first, and then just prioritizing the list of markets? What's kind of your, your algorithm for that? So it starts with the assumption that we're going to have to be everywhere, ultimately, right? That um, you don't actually have to build like native global payroll in every country in the world. It doesn't make sense to do that in every country in the world. But you definitely want to be able to pay people in any country in the world. And you want to be able to have contractors anywhere in the world and have their information be in your HRIS anywhere in the world. And so the decision for us, we were fortunate to, or when we made that decision, to have quite a few customers already, like thousands thousands of customers. And so we knew not only where their kind of U.S. employees were, but by virtue of being an employee system work, we actually knew where they had other employees. And so it was quite easy for us to say, focusing on U.S.-based companies, which is incomplete data, right? But if we just look at our U.S.-based companies, we know that there is immediate demand for those people to pay people in, you know, countries X, Y, and Z. And we just like listed those out in raw numerical order. And then we kind of looked at, okay, how hard is it to build in these countries and how valuable is it to build in these countries, right? Like what is the strategic value of building in the UK or Canada or Germany or India or wherever? And then we had a discussion on like, where is there risk, right? Well, where, where is this, where is this hard? Where's there a long pull? Where does this like, in what countries does it take like a long time to get approval or whatever? And we just stack ranked them. And, uh, and then we revisited that decision, right? Like the early decisions that we made on exactly which countries, like we have subsequently like reordered those over time. And as we've dove, dived into countries and learned more, you know, we, we, we rejigger things like a little bit, but for the most part, like that same basic list we started with is still like, you know, mostly right. Okay. And then the other question a lot of founders always struggle with is when is the time to start expanding internationally? Cause you know, there's pros and cons. Do you have a sense of what? convinced you all to start going international? I think our case is slightly special, but I think the right answer to that question is always before you think you do, mm-hmm. <laughs> before you think you need to, because like there are, it's harder than everyone. If they've never done it before, it's harder than you think it is. It's more specialized than you think it is. People in the UK really, really care if there is a U in color, right? Uh, just mm-hmm. as we care if there's not a U in color, right? There's just like all of these subtle lessons that like cultural lessons for companies that take like a really, really long time to absorb. And so my view is you always should do it earlier than you think you should, that then you think you have to. In our case, it was always something we knew we had to do. In fact, we have a very clear thesis that companies that aren't global, particularly in payroll, but also in kind of insurance and benefits and, and IT, if you're not global, you're just not going to be around in 10 years because companies were becoming global. And then COVID happened and companies became global much faster, right? It stopped being the province of like, hundred person companies plus and like started filtering down into very, very small companies. It just became commonplace for small companies to be multi-country. And so that very much um, accelerated kind of our, our timetable. And then you saw, you know, other people noticed that too. And you saw other companies starting to try to address parts of this problem as well. And so there's this kind of competitive dimension, which is sort of secondary in, in most ways, because we were going to do it anyway. But like that also kind of adds a little bit of a, you know, fire under the, under the thing. What have you found to be most surprising about expanding internationally to be successful in in expansion for folks that are maybe starting down this road of like, oh, shoot, we should think about that? I think the thing that was most surprising to me the first time I did this back at Guidewire in the in the aughts mm. um, and remains the most surprising thing to most people, you know, every time I do this again, is that every country is unique. You can't just like you can't just take your U.S. based approach. 
and like drop it into another country. Other countries find it insulting. It doesn't matter how much success you've had here. Everyone always believes, rightly or wrongly, that their local context is special and you have to respect that. And it comes down to like little things like there being a you in color or not. Or, you know, if you ever see a demo delivered to somebody in another country where they see like a detail screen about a person that includes a social security number, it's like that you immediately lose credibility. It doesn't matter how good all the rest of your stuff is. And so I think that that is consistently the thing that I think is most surprising to people is the degree to which that's true, which seems obvious in retrospect, right? If you took like, German system or something and like demoed it in the United States with like poorly translated stuff, we would think it would suck too. Right. And so, but it's not, it's really hard to adapt to that mindset. And, um, and so it takes just a lot of energy to, to kind of overcome that organizationally. Makes tons of sense. I'm going to go in a different direction now. Um, sure. Frameworks. So I know that you're not a huge fan of frameworks. We were talking, chatting about this before we started recording. And so I'm curious just to hear your perspective on why you're maybe not a fan of frameworks and then also just like how you crystallize processes and concepts for your team if you're not just like here here's a framework you should use look i think frameworks are very helpful so i'm not exactly anti-framework <laughs> but i am anti-process as a substitution for deep product thinking right so i like to have just enough process to create a frame <laughs> right? So that the right decisions can happen and like no more. And I think there's a danger, especially as companies scale that you end up saying, well, you know, if only we categorize, you know, everything correctly in Jira, like, you know, we will be able to make like really good prioritization decisions. So I'm like, sure, extremely helpful to have clear categorization and, and things in Jira's and have like data and analysis and to be able to do all of that stuff. But what you really need to do is decide what's important to build, right? And then like have a way to build it like really efficiently. And so, so I think the right answer, the right amount of process for any given team is like or the right framework for any team is really just dependent on like their specific life cycle. So you won't see me saying like, oh, we need to use like this scrum thing or that Kanban thing or whatever, like the latest, newest thing is. It's like, don't care about any of that. What I care is about something that's going to enable this team in this context at this point in their life cycle to build the right thing as efficiently as possible. And I'm fine if those are different for different teams. And the only place I care about unification is one on the quarterly planning process and two, like everything does need in fact to be in Jira because otherwise you can't rationalize about what's actually getting done and not. Is there a process or framework that uh, you find is like counterproductive that you're just like, stay away from this thing. Uh, we've had a lot of trouble with it or, or generally it's like, let's just rethink everything ourselves. Um, no, I don't find one to be particular. I don't, I haven't consistently found one to be particularly problematic. So I think any framework sort of has its place, you know, right place, right time. I think there's, I think there's danger any one time somebody like dogmatically says, I think we should use process X because that's almost never the right answer in my, in my experience. I think, I think there are places where that can differ. Like you start a company like on the basis of process X and like everyone's bought into that process and everyone understands it. Um, I think that can be really, really great. And like, and on the engineering side, I think this is hugely valuable. It's like, test-driven development, first line of code is going to be a test, not the actual thing. Like, fantastic, very supportive of all that. But I think it's kind of different in the product world. If you had to compare the way Coinbase builds product process-wise or just product development process-wise to Rippling, what would you say are the bigger differences? I think the differences are largely born of, like, the different domains, right? So crypto, as we talked about earlier, really hard to predict <laughs> what's going on. There's all these questions about what's the future of crypto? What's going to matter? Like, what do we even need to build? What's going to survive? And so the process we had at Coinbase around like having those debates and like getting to a decision and disagreeing and committing and then from an execution point of view, being able to move fast, like that was the trick, right, at Coinbase. Here, we know the things that we need to build like at a, at a high level. And the trick is, how do we really differentiate it on the basis of like, these amazing platform capabilities we have, or how do we have to evolve those platform capabilities um, in order to continue to build something that's just discontinuously better than everything that's out there. And that like yields a different decision-making process. So for me, it's like the mental model is actually of how I approach those things are the same, but they just like yield different results in the, in the actual um, making of the software. What is that actual difference you find like day-to-day? -day? Is it like timeline differences? Is it how quickly... I don't know, the way you structure, how far out you plan, what do you find is like the concrete difference as a result? I think the difference is in the day-to-day -day velocity of like decision-making, right? Because we can 
you know, rippling, if you're like on, I don't know, pick a random team, if you're on the device management team, like, you know what you got to do, right? There's no ambiguity. You're not debating about, you know, whether, you know, Mac or Windows is going to exist <laughs> in the future. Like none of, there's none of that cognitive dissonance, right? There is, we need to build this. It's hard to figure out how we need to build this, right? Because there's all these different things that we could leverage, but but we need to basically get this done. And so the the kind of total velocity, I would say, is is higher here, which is not to say people work harder or less hard at Columbia. It's like Columbia was like an amazingly fast like environment, but it was also subject to the fact that like you just don't know what the crypto markets are going to do, and you have to be incredibly reactive to that. And so I think maybe that's the one thing, like like the reactivity to like the environment and the crypto environment, what's going on and the the uncertainty of the regulatory environment, all that stuff. We got really, really, really good at handling those things really rapidly, which is something that we need to handle somewhat less um, heroically. Sounds quite stressful. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, it was, um, it was fun. Like I stress, yes, it was stressful. I mean, every job I've ever had has been stressful, but in, in its own unique way. But it, all, all of that stress, I think, is in the shape of a problem that's in the context of a problem that's really interesting. I mean, that's why I stayed at these places, right? And so, um, but yeah, it's stressful. <laughs> and looking back, what a joy. Yeah, no, they are very good memories. Like I look back, I don't really, I remember the stress, but I don't like re-experience it, right? I, re- I remember like, you know, forging these relationships and building these amazing products that that I've been so lucky to be a part of. And, um, and so I have, you know, almost only good memories of the places I've been. <laughs> That's what I find too. You go through these hardships uh, and then you look back and you're like, wow, that was so cool. But uh, assuming yeah. they go well, assuming the company works out and like True. it feels like, you know, it was successful. A lot, a lot of times you're at a startup, you, your life sucks for two years and it doesn't work out and that there is a lot of, you know, upside and good memories yeah. to that, but it's less, it's less, less glorious. Yeah, that's fair. Um, though, I mean, the, the, the first company I was really at kind of out of school is a company called Reactivity mm-hmm. back in internet one era. And like, we were trying to figure out like, how does this internet thing work? How do we start companies on the basis of these tech, new technologies? And how do we help other companies like build stuff and figure it out? You know, and that company like fundamentally like didn't work out. Um, ultimately got kind of spun itself out and got acquired, uh, which, which was great. Um, but like it was this extraordinary set of people that I was so lucky to work with. And I, you know, I loved all the time I spent there and it was foundational to like everything else I ever did. And so even though that effort didn't like, you know, pay off in the traditional set, like the value of the the learnings I had there and then the people I had a chance to work with was just really exceptional. So I feel very lucky. That's a really good point, actually. And I think I should correct even what I said, that even when things don't like work out traditionally, those experiences end up being incredibly valuable in all these unexpected ways. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. Okay, so final topic. I want to talk about sure. hiring, hiring product managers mm-hmm. and interviewing. Yeah. So you've hired a lot of PMs over the years. I'm curious what's something you've learned about what to look for in product managers and also just in product leaders that other people may not be focused on enough? I mean, I don't know that I have any like particularly special insight here. I I think there's a couple things that I do ask that I, that maybe are more of an emphasis because it's rippling than than not. But like the first of those is, when people are kind of going through our process, there's a part where they they do this case study. And an important part of the case study is that it's like actually too complex for people to like have all of the answers up front. It's just like the space of the problem is is too large to do that. Which means that like in the interview, there's a lot of opportunities, or in the case study, there's a lot of opportunities to just like ask ad hoc questions or to like change one assumption. And seeing how people react to that is really indicative of how deeply they understand you know, a new problem or how quickly or how mentally agile they are. And, you know, and some people are extremely good at that, like here in Assumption, and they like blink a couple times, they're like, oh, well, that has like these 400 implications, right? And they just start rattling them off. And some people get like really flummoxed, right? I mean, obviously, for our environment, that former is like really, really um, important to us. I think the other thing that really matters to me is like the insightfulness of qu- questions that people ask which is indicative of number one, their like actual interest in the job, right? Like people tend to ask better questions when they're like more excited about working at a place and like done their research and are asking people about it. And also like the quality of those questions like can vary 
quite dramatically. And and that's okay. I don't expect the quality to be the same all the time. But like sometimes people ask a question, I'm like, oh man, I would have never thought to ask that question. That's such an insightful question. And then I pause and I have to think about my answer a little bit. And so it kind of pushes me to be a little bit better. Um, and when that happens, I know I usually have a pretty good candidate on my hands. Is there an example of someone asking a really good question like that that comes to mind that you think back to and like, oh, wow, that was great. I remember about three years ago, I was interviewing a guy named Kyle Boston. And Kyle uh, is now, now runs our platform product organization. And I can't remember the specific question he asked, but it had something to do with, wait a minute, if you have all of these products and you have this like employee system of record thing underneath it, shouldn't we be thinking about like how to create these like various pillars of kind of underlying platform technology, things like you know, permissioning all this stuff. And this was before we like fully formalized the concept of our like platform beyond the kind of employee system of record. And I remember thinking like, yes, yes, we should. <laughs> and, you know, that had entered our minds before, but the fact that somebody which who had like almost no context on the company, right? That That's what was impressive about this question. It's like, man, you've been thinking about Rippling for like a couple weeks while you're like interviewing with a bunch of other companies or whatever. And like, you've thought about it deeply enough to have this insight into the nature of the platform that we're building, like immediately, like gave me a bunch of confidence in, in his ability to kind of think through the sorts of things we need him to think through. And I think it touches on PMs need to be business leaders. And yeah, great questions are often about the business and the future of the business and how to make it run more efficiently. And this and, you know, there's like a product org element to it. But I find that that's like a really under appreciate element of PM interviews, just like thinking about the bigger business, not just like the PM product. Yeah, for me, it's like two things. It's like thinking about the bigger business, right? And having having the context like around, you know, whether it's like revenue questions or strategy questions, but also like the detailed questions, mm-hmm. right? It's like, oh, wait a minute, the implication of this thing that I'm getting asked or of this thing, Jeremy, that you said earlier is all of these things, right? And their ability to kind of understand that, that this isn't a simple business, like it's really hard, it's really complex, and the ability to kind of to have these insights to help them think through those details is really cool. You talked about this prompt that you give product managers, not to give away what you actually ask these days, but is there an example of a prompt that you've given in the past or you think is like a good example of a type of prompt to give a product manager candidate? I, it, uh, in terms of like a general kind of approach, I think a prompt should always like reflect the actual business that they're going to kind of come into. Right. So, so when we do like, so our process overall is, is actually quite short. It's basically, you know, get in contact with us somehow, eventually get, you know, connected with a hiring manager, have a conversation with them. Then more or less you have a conversation with me, which is a product discussion. And then we have a case study, which follows that. That's the whole process, you know, modulo other conversations around the edges. And the questions that matter are around like, how do people think through that product discussion, right? Which is relevant to our business. How do people think through that case study? That's number one. And the second thing is there's always a part of my interview, which is, which is uh, maybe sounds very simple, but it's just like, hey, what questions do you have for me? Right? We actually do that before we do the product discussion. And that's an incredibly important question because it, it is, again, indicative of like these things that people have thought through or not thought through or kind of the, the depth of their thinking or their interest and engagement in the role. And like at that second discussion, it doesn't have to be like perfect or anything, but, but it is a very strong signal when people, you know, whether they've thought through a set of questions they want to ask or just like, you know, on the fly, like generating them, you learn a lot about how people think about product, about, you know, what they're looking for, about, you know, what they like doing and not doing just through those questions. For PMs that are maybe in their early career that are listening mm-hmm. to this, what advice would you give them to help them accelerate and advance their career most in the early part of their career? Be humble. Uh, being a product person means that like by definition, you're living in a world where like no one knows the right answer yet because if somebody did, they would have already built it, <laughs> right? And so having like, no matter how smart you are, there's a lot of smart people out there, right? There's always stuff you don't know. There's always people who are going to know things that you don't know. And it is only through that acknowledgement, right? That you can actually have the humility to say like, I'm open to absorbing all of this stuff I don't know and open to synthesizing all this stuff and coming to different conclusions. And so I found that that humility is one of like the biggest differentiators in early career product leaders who sort of are 
you know, able to let go of like how awesome they were in school or in their first job or whatever. I mean, I had to do this, <laughs> right? And, and like, and realize like the job is always hard and the job is always about discovery every single day. And if you can maintain that like curiosity and elasticity of thought and, and creativity and like coming solutions, it'd be awesome. But if you close yourself off to that and think you always have the right answer, then there's like no hope. This touches on a, another principle that I still have sitting on my screen here, which is to, uh, <laughs> great leaders change their minds a lot or just change their minds. Yeah. Willing to look at new information and say, my mental model is adjusted by that or I was wrong. Very simply. I mean, I think it's also important to be operating in an environment where you're allowed to say that you're wrong. Right? Everyone's wrong sometimes. I mean, be right a lot, but everyone's wrong sometimes. Right. And and being and be able to be an environment where you can just like say, yep. I was wrong. Here's the way in which I was wrong. Let's move on is incredibly powerful. Final question. You've brought up Parker a number of times and something that is clear about him is that he's a very product minded founder. He has a lot of strong opinions about what product should be. And as a product leader with a founder like that uh, is often a challenging place to be similar to being the first PM at a startup and the founder has strong opinions about product. So my question is just what have you learned about being successful as a product leader? with a founder that has very strong opinions about what the product should be? Yeah, no, it's a great, it's a great question. So I think you've got to be adaptable, right? Like it's like any other relationship, right? You have to understand like what the nature of that relationship is, where that person's going to care, where you're going to care, the ways in which you can challenge each other. Um, like I think fundamentally you need to make sure that person is willing to be challenged, right? So, you know, I've seen product leaders or CEOs who are like kind of unwilling to be challenged. Um, and I wouldn't be able to work with those people. <laughs> um, uh, but, but, but yeah, Parker is, uh, incredibly strongly opinionated, but he's also incredibly informed, which makes for some really, really great debates. And I've just found that like whatever, and it's not even a CEO, but whatever a manager's idiosyncrasies are, you have to find a way to like, work with those. And I think that that adaptability, like I'm just sort of, I, I like being like, you know, a moldable puzzle piece where I can just kind of fit in. Um, I think that's actually one of my, one of my core skills. <laughs> so, and so that's worked, that's worked out for me. And, you know, Parker and I, before I started, you know, started developing like a deep foundation of respect, which is like extremely important to like building that. And like over the years, it's just gotten deeper and deeper. And, um, you know, we don't always agree, but like when we don't, we can have a, totally reasonable discussion about it and um and you know that's what makes it fun adaptability actually is uh, i took a strength finder test once of finding yeah. my own strengths and that was my number one strength is i'm adaptable. <laughs> i think we share that's that. excellent yeah seems like an important attribute for uh being in a place you're in well with that we've reached our very exciting lightning round i've got Ooh, six okay. questions for you if you're ready <clears throat> all right i'm i'm ready hit Here me we go what are two or three books that you've recommended most to other people well, first is like my favorite series of books ever, which is the Baroque Cycle by Neil Stevenson. Uh, it's a nine volume epic or three, three volume, nine book epic, depending on how you want to look at it. But like, it's about the, the time, like just before and like into the, the enlightenment historical fiction, a lot of fun. And then I also love uh, the culture series by Ian Banks, um, which is just like super fun, far future sort of, uh, uh, universe that I, that I, that I've really enjoyed. What's a favorite recent movie or TV show? Watch The Last of Us. Um, you know, I was an avid fan of the game, and uh, I thought they did a really, really nice adaptation. Um, favorite, like, I guess, recent movie. It's not that recent, but I really like Tenet. You know, uh, which which I thought was a. Uh, I, I'm I'm I was impressed with their ability to kind of go there and make that movie, and I just really enjoyed it, like end to end. We had a. It kind of ended, but we had a drinking game. Anytime someone mentioned Last of Us, which. Uh took over white lotus i'm gonna drink some tea right here okay fair enough i'll try i've only got water normally i got tea but uh water today that works uh but it's interesting it hasn't come up often so i think maybe we end that for now and see what the new pattern emerges <laughs> uh, yeah and then tenant feels like i was just thinking it feels like a compound movie compound yeah. startup as a movie that movie is yeah. very complicated too to yeah stay that's why i enjoyed it I like I like trying to like figure out like the, the multi timeline chart in my head as the movie progressed. <laughs> the puzzle piece within you, trying to find all the yeah. puzzle pieces. Yeah, for sure. What is a favorite interview question you like to ask? You already maybe answer this, but anything else come to mind? I think I did. No, my favorite one is like, "What questions do you have for me?" By by so, far. Great. What are some favorite products you've recently discovered that you love? I guess I'll just mention. I don't I don't know if I go as far as to call these favorite products, but there's two that come to mind. 
my wife's computer um, broke the other day and I realized it was the CPU cooler that went bad. And the Corsair H60 CPU cooler was like super easy to use and really adaptable to lots of motherboards. I thought that was great. My other favorite product is the one I'm wearing in my ears right now, which my first pair of nice headphones I ever bought died last week, late last week. Um, I had to do like some really quick research into my new favorite pair of headphones and these focal bathies are like super nice. I'm a bit of an audiophile. I like to listen to like classical music and ambient stuff. So we need a lot of dynamic range and these and, you know, noise cancellation and these have been like great so far. Okay. So what is it? What are they called? Focal. I think it's Bathys, B-A-T-H-Y-S. Okay. And is there a specific model or there's like that one? That's it. Okay. You'll, you'll, you'll know it when you see it. <laughs> okay. We will uh, link to that in the show notes and maybe I'll get one. <laughs> What's something relatively minor you've changed in the way that you built product? that has had a lot of impact on your team's ability to execute? Maybe the most recent innovation sort of at Rippling was the kind of introduction of what I'm calling imperatives. These things that whether they come bottom up or top down are things that like everybody across the entire product and engineering team needs to do. And what's important about that list is the things that are not on it. And in a world where, you know, we could choose to do hundreds of things at once, like being able to, to kind of force rank that list of things, draw a line and say, these are the ones everyone has to do has created a lot more focus and clarity than than we had before. So imperatives are essentially like, here's the priorities for the next say quarter, six months here. The these here are the priorities for everybody. And now mm-hmm. integrate that into your own team's priorities, right? So so each team like still is building like their own priorities, but like they like, have to factor in like this set. How many of those do you usually have? This is awesome. I like this tip. It, it, it depends. Like it depends on what level of granularity <laughs> you want to talk about them at. Like like maybe 10, right? It's a lot. We're, we're going through like between like globalization and like large improvements of the platform and like a bunch of other, you know, you know, large companies, all these things. It creates a bunch of things that just have to be cross team simultaneously. I think it's a pretty natural part of a company's evolution and we're just in that part of the cycle. So awesome. Used it. Final question. What's a question I should have asked you that I didn't ask you? I guess, what do I do with my kids? Maybe I have two kids. They're nine what do you do with your and kids? six. What do I do with my kids? Um, my son, I'm a big board gamer. And while I didn't push it on him, my son, he will play board games, you know, morning to night. And so we play a lot of like European like strategy games uh, together. And my daughter's now getting old enough that she's getting into them too. And so uh, we just finished as a family playing uh, Pandemic Legacy. And the reward tomorrow night is we get to start playing Gloomhaven. So that's going to wow. be fun. <laughs> I don't know. Either game sounds very hard and complicated. <laughs> they're, they're fun. They're fun. Amazing. Jeremy, we covered a lot of topics. I feel like this is a compound podcast episode. And so uh, <laughs> thank you for spending time with me. Thanks for being here. Two final questions. Where can folks find you online if they want to reach out, learn more? And how can listeners be useful to you? Awesome. LinkedIn is the easiest way online. And uh you know, if what I've been talking about today sounds interesting to you, we're definitely hiring like senior entrepreneurial PMs. And so if those leadership principles on our website look interesting, I'd, I'd love to hear from you. What's the best way to explore those roles and apply? The website has by far the best channel. It gets to this right recruiter who will tell me about it right away. <laughs> <laughs> Great. So Ripling.com and there's probably a site for careers. There's a career site on there that's okay. pretty easy to find. We'll link to that in the show notes. Jeremy, thank you again for being here. Thanks so much for having me. This was a lot of fun. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that really helps other listeners find the podcast. You can find all past episodes or learn more about the show at Lenny'sPodcast.com. See you in the next episode.